ESPN Radio. This is ESPN Radio on the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80, and streaming live on ESPN+. Plus. ESPN Radio is presented to you by Progressive Insurance. I am Amber Wilson. He is Chris Canty. We are hanging out with you until 7 o'clock Eastern. You can tweet to us at ChrisCanty99, at AmberW790. You can also join the conversation on the Canty call-in line at 888-SAY-ESPN. That is 888-729-3776. We've been Amber, talking a can, lot. I, can I put something out there about the Twitter? Because people are hitting us up on the Twitter line. Keep Go it classy it. on the Twitter line, folks. I'm just saying, no personal oh, no. attacks. Let's just keep it classy in the Twitterverse. You know, we're a sports talk show. It's not that serious. We try to have healthy debate, but just let's make sure we keep it classy. We don't need anybody, you know, pulling a Kyrie Irving on the show and blowing a gasket. You know what I mean? Oh, I don't no. have $50,000 to pay the fine to ESPN. So let's just keep it classy <laughs> on the Twitterverse. Please and thank you. Continue with our regularly scheduled program, Amber. Yes, looking forward to that when I dive into my mentions here uh, next commercial break. We've been talking a lot of NBA on today's show, so let's take a little hiatus. We're going to go to the NFL, and when we go to the NFL, the player who we're normally talking about this offseason is the only, one and only, Baker Mayfield, Chris Canty. So let's go ahead and update the people on Baker Mayfield because the latest is that maybe he will have a landing spot after all, and it's a landing spot that we all thought might be an original landing spot and then the Carolina Panthers came out and they said no we're not interested in Baker and then Baker came out and said well I'm not interested in Carolina and it felt a little bit like who's breaking up with who first and now we're hearing maybe they're both rekindling their romance and actually interested in each other and Chris I was confused by the initial reports when there wouldn't be interest from Carolina. I understand you're very down on Baker, so I can imagine where this conversation is going to go. But we're talking (laughs) about a Carolina Panthers organization that desperately needs a quarterback. Sam Darnold ain't it, right? And so it needs an answer at quarterback, and it doesn't have much time. They do have that sixth pick in the draft, so they could, of course, address the quarterback position at the top of this draft. But this is not a draft that we hear is very uh, heavy or deep in terms of the quarterback position. And then also Matt rules on the hot seat and normally bring in a rookie quarterback, especially a rookie quarterback out of a quarterback class. That's not even supposed to be NFL ready out of the gate to save your job. Isn't necessarily the best way to do it. So maybe Mm -hmm. the better way to do it would be to take a look at a guy who's been in the league for years, for four years. He does have some winning under his belt, even Uh if people forget about it. And at least with Baker, you know that there is some talent there and that he has the ability to run an offense in the NFL. Well, let's start here, Amber. The first thing that I would think is when you say they don't have a lot of time to get it right, we've got to clarify who doesn't have a lot of time because it's not the general manager. Scott Fritter is going into his second year as the GM for the Carolina Panthers. He took over for Marty Herney last season. The person that doesn't have a lot of time is Matt Rule. And he was the guy that was brought over three years ago after getting a lot of programs turned around, whether you want to talk about his time at Temple, whether you want to talk about his time at Baylor. He got college programs turned around to the point where you thought that those teams could compete at a really high level whether in the bowl season. So everybody gives Matt Rule credit for being able to turn around collegiate programs, and they thought that they would translate well to the NFL, not to mention his ability to be able to scout and develop quarterback talent. And so that's the one thing that the Carolina Panthers were banking on, and that just has not been the case with Matt Rule. Now, as far as picking quarterbacks goes, he took a big swing last year and he missed. Sam Donald was the guy that he was betting it on, so much so that they traded multiple draft picks, including second-round picks, 
to the to the New York Jets for Sam Donald, and that has not panned out, and the Panthers are stuck with Sam Donald's fifth-year option at $19 million this season. So if I'm the general manager of the Panthers, I'm not giving Matt Rule another opportunity to take a big swing at a quarterback, and I'm not passing up on the opportunity if I love one of these quarterbacks in this year's draft because my coach is on the hot seat. Those are things that I'm just not doing. I'm not jeopardizing the development of my program and the development of my overall culture because I'm trying to save Matt Rule's job. That's number one. Second thing, with as it pertains to Baker Mayfield, it's not necessarily the player that bothers me. It's the leader and the teammate in the locker room that I'm concerned with. And I go back to the public spat that he had with Odell Beckham Jr. when Odell Beckham Sr. posted that video or co-signed on the video on the internet of Baker Mayfield missing throws to OBJ and Jarvis Landry when those guys were seemingly wide open. That public spat and the organization siding with Baker and then seeing what OBJ turned into, and then after that, hearing the fallout in the Browns locker room about how players were split based on what the organization did with Odell Beckham, that's the part that I'm concerned with. All of the stuff on the social media, all of the stuff in the post-game press conferences, all the passive-aggressive quotes through the media, those are things that I don't want from my quarterback. And we got to remember that quarterback is a leadership position by nature. I don't know that I want to introduce that into my locker room if I'm the general manager of the Carolina Panthers or any team. And quite frankly, Amber, I don't think there are any questions about Baker Mayfield, the player. I think the questions out there in NFL circles now and why he doesn't have a job today is because of the leadership or lack thereof. I do think there's some questions about Baker Mayfield, the player, in terms of his accuracy with all those interceptions, and I think that would be fair, but he is an upgrade. I think both you and I agree he's an upgrade over Sam Darnold. So because right now Sam Darnold is the guy, and they have tried several starting quarterbacks just over the last season alone, nevertheless the rotating position that that has been for the Carolina Panthers. Cam Newton wasn't it. Sam Darnold is not it. We already have the answer to that, even though they're stuck here with his fifth year option at least with Baker although fine there's a little bit of question mark there in terms of his playing ability with Baker you also like I said you're only a year and a half removed from him having a very good season in Cleveland and you know that he can win a playoff game you know that he can get some stuff done and you know that he can run an NFL offense which is more than I can say about any of these guys of course in the NFL draft also how many questions are so how many questions are there about Baker so there's some questions but not nearly as many as the guys that you're looking at in the draft, right? The Panthers also, they have the space. I mean, you're talking about there's a limited market right now for Baker. People are acting like his $18 is so expensive. I mean, right now, the Panthers have almost $13 I believe, in cap space as if. They can can free up another, you know, $5, $6 here uh, to bring Baker on board. And then I'm not suggesting they hand him an extension. I mean, what's the harm in bringing him on board when he's got one year left on his deal? Don't hand him an extension right now. Don't find yourself in the same situation. And then, frankly, Chris, you could do something crazy which is exactly what I would do if I was a general manager in the NFL and maybe this is why I'm not but if I was a GM in the NFL I would draft a quarterback and bring in Baker I'd draft a quarterback every darn round in the NFL draft until I found my quarterback or bring in every quarterback I could find off the streets or in free agency or in trade until I hit on that position because you need
need to desperately hit on that position. And particularly in Carolina, give yourself as many opportunities as you can to do that. There is a potential still here for major upside with Baker Mayfield, right? I mean, we do know about the adversity in Cleveland. It's not like he's had consistency in the o- at the OC position. It's not like he's had the best protection. It's not like he's always had the best chemistry with his weapons. And it's not like he hasn't been playing through injury, namely last season, that had a lot to do with where his numbers were at. So there is a potential upside here for Baker Mayfield to look better in a different uniform. You think he's going to look better in Carolina than he would have looked in Cleveland? Well, I, I said a different uniform. I mean, that's the problem that we're talking about. Okay, I was about, about to say, because Carolina. the supporting cast, it ain't even close. Like, defensively, Carolina's not far off from where the Cleveland Browns are, but the offense for the Browns is light years ahead of where the Carolina Panthers are. Right. The Browns have a far better running game. They have far more weapons at the receiver positions. So I, I, don't, I don't buy into Baker Mayfield potentially going down to Carolina and looking a lot better. I just think Carolina presents an opportunity for Baker Mayfield to be a starting quarterback where it doesn't seem like there are going to be a lot of opportunities in the NFL landscape in 2022. It's Carolina or it's Seattle. The only question that I would have, Amber, is because there are reports that Jimmy Garoppolo and the Carolina Panthers have mutual interests. If you're the Panthers, why would you want to take on Baker Mayfield baggage when you have a relatively proven commodity in Jimmy Garoppolo that could step in and be a bridge to whatever you're going to do long-term at the quarterback position? I think if it was me, I'd rather go with Jimmy G, but I do understand okay. that there's very real durability concerns with Jimmy Garoppolo. And then Jimmy Garoppolo is one of those players who a lot of people think has been a product of a very good coach in a good offense. And so how good is Jimmy Garoppolo really if you put him on a team like the Carolina Panthers? We might see a sharp decline. And I didn't mean to suggest that I think Baker, because of that same reason, by the way, I don't think it's not that I think Baker's going to go down to Carolina and then all of a sudden look better. I just meant that Baker has a potential still here for upside. It's not like a quarterback that I think we definitely for sure know where his ceiling is. I feel like we do when it comes to Sam Darnold at this point in his his career whereas at least with Baker he presents that opportunity for some upside maybe Jimmy G does as well but the problem with Jimmy G has always been durability and I think that's where people are concerned and then also expense I mean he's 10 million dollars more just this season alone than Baker Mayfield is so that always matters particularly at the point that we're already at with the quarterback carousel in the league year where everyone's already up against their cap coming up we head back to the NBA is Game two, a must win for John Morant and the Memphis Grizzlies. This is ESPN Radio with Amber Wilson and Chris Canty. ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio with Amber Wilson and Chris Canty. And Chris, Memphis, the number two seed in the West. The 
team that we all thought was hands down the second team to the Suns in the Western Conference, the team that some people thought would challenge the Phoenix Suns and actually win the West and maybe was already ready and prepared for us to see that very young team in an NBA Finals mm-hmm. lost game one of the first round. I mean, it's pretty yeah. remarkable. They were a six-and-a-half-point favorite against the Timberwolves, and they had absolutely no answer whatsoever for Anthony Edwards and Carl Anthony Towns. Just none. But- but you know what time it is, though, Amber. When you're a relatively young team and you don't have a ton of playoff experience, sometimes it's hard to be prepared for the moment. And for Memphis, think about it this way. Even though they had a foray into the postseason last year, the expectations on them in this postseason are completely different. They're one of the favorites. They're the second team in the, in the Western Conference. They had the second-best record in the entire NBA. So people are looking at them differently, including their opponent, the, Mem- the Minnesota Timberwolves, And I don't think that the Memphis Grizzlies and Taylor Jenkins were all prepared for that. And you saw it in the first quarter that the T-Wolves were able to put together. Dropping 41 points against a team that is known to have fast starts in the Memphis Grizzlies, I think that speaks volumes in terms of their preparedness and being ready for that moment. They just weren't up for the task. So I I don't want to put too much stock into what we saw in game one, but that puts a whole lot of pressure on the Memphis Grizzlies coming into game two. The only reason I won't put too much stock in it is also that the Grizzlies had, what, a week off from playing basketball, more than a week without playing basketball, and they looked cold. They looked like they had taken some time off here, and then the Timberwolves come out, like you said, poor 41 in the first quarter, and things just got out of hand. And I do think when you're talking about a young team that that can happen. But here's the thing. These are both two young teams, and the Timberwolves looks like the far more mature sure team I do think the Grizzlies are slightly younger but these are the two youngest teams in these NBA playoffs so for the Grizzlies to feel like that against the Timberwolves where it felt like they were like the moment was too big for them like they weren't fully ready for it they weren't prepared I thought that was a little strange against this specific opponent but that's exactly what it seemed like from the Grizz and this is why Chris I have been saying since the get since before the postseason began when people would have the conversation we'd you know have the conversation up here tee up the subject on here of how far can the Memphis Grizzlies go and I think you were one who thought maybe they could make it all the way to the NBA finals and I said I just don't believe it because of how young and inexperienced they are and it's that experience we always see catch up to these teams in the postseason I don't really know why you played professional sports I didn't so I'm sure you can speak to that better than I can but for some reason experience always matters so much more in the postseason and it was like this Grizzlies team forgot at times how to play basketball and how to defend and and how to deal with the moment in game one. Well, yeah, I I mean, the game changes, Amber, across all sports, playoffs, the game changes. The intensity is different. The speed of the game is different. It's faster. And so you have to be prepared for all of those feels and the stakes are bigger. So not every player responds to that the way that you would expect them to. So, Until you get out there, you don't really know. And then coupled with that, the expectations the Memphis Grizzlies came into this postseason with. So I'm one of the people that thought that Memphis could go on a deep playoff run, but I didn't pick them to come out of the Western Conference. I've been saying all season long that that's going to be the Golden State Warriors, and I haven't seen anything to move me off my perch. But our very own Jay Williams from KJM, 
He was the one that said a month ago that the Memphis Grizzlies are going to the NBA Finals. And while I'm not ready to be completely dismissive of the idea, I think we saw some things in game one that would make us understand why some people would be skeptical of that take and why they would have a hard time pulling off that task because they don't have the experience in comparison to some of the other teams. Look at the Phoenix Suns. They made it to the NBA Finals last year and having a veteran like Chris Paul be the floor general for them. The Golden State Warriors with Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Draymond Green, and oh, by the way, a championship-level coach in Steve Kerr. Like, in a lot of ways, this is all new learning for the Memphis Grizzlies, so there is going to be somewhat of a curve, but I absolutely expect them to come out with a completely different energy tonight than what we saw from them on Saturday in Game 1 against the T-Wolves. The other thing that we got to understand is this, Amber. The T-Wolves played in the play-in game against the L.A. Clippers. And if you watch the end of that game and how Pat Beverly was celebrating, that was a real taste of what playoff basketball is all about. Guys diving all over the floor for loose balls, scrapping, hard personal fouls, getting your money's worth. Like, that, that's, that's a different animal when you talk about gearing up to, to play that style of basketball. The Grizzlies had done that days before. That's that's right. something that the I mean the the Timberwolves have done that days before. The Grizzlies have had over a week off. So again, ratcheting up to that intensity level takes a little more time for them than it did for the T-Wolves. So I think we saw a lot of that in game 1. Not to mention the T-Wolves shot the lights out of the basketball. You're talking about 50% from the field and 39% from 3. I'm pretty sure that the Memphis Grizzlies aren't going to shoot 26% from three-point land in game two. So, again, I expect the complexion of this game to look completely different. But that being said, the Grizzlies still got to find an answer for Ant-Man Anthony Edwards because that dude just went off. And as far as athleticism is concerned, he has everything that you would want from today's wing players, Mm -hmm. but he's built like a linebacker. And I just don't know how you deal with a guy like that. Yeah, Anthony Edwards. I mean, it felt like Anthony Edwards coming out party. I know we already knew how great Anthony Edwards could be in this league, but seeing him do it in the postseason is something special. uh, And that was certainly a heck of a game from Anthony Edwards and a bounce back game for Carl Anthony Towns because you mentioned the play-in. And I'm with you. It's why I said that the Grizz had so much time off here the Timberwolves come in and they're coming high in off of a big win and they were emotional. They're jumping on the scores table, you know, that whole bit. And then they come in and they did feel more prepared to play and maybe a little bit more prepared to be here in the postseason because frankly, they had already been in the postseason a few days before, like you said, mm-hmm. but Carl Anthony Towns did not have a good game in that playing game at all. And then big bounce back here and the Grizz yep. allowed him to have a big bounce back here and you can't allow that. So now the Grizzlies find themselves in in a position where this feels like a must win for the Grizzlies. And the reason it was so shocking, Chris, is because it was coming against this Timberwolves team. The Grizzlies are inexperienced. The Timberwolves' last playoff win was, what, two decades ago? I mean, that's what we're talking about with them winning a series here. Uh, It wouldn't be the first time in NBA history that a seven seed upsets uh, such a high seed, but it has only been done a few times, five times, I think, in the history of the NBA so definitely Mm. a series to watch it does feel like uh to ward off that conversation which we will certainly be having if the Grizz drop another one here the Grizz need to win this game coming up next have the Warriors proved that they are the team to beat and are they real are there real concerns for James Harden moving forward this is ESPN radio
ESPN Radio. It is the playoffs, and this is ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio is presented to you by Progressive Insurance. Amber Wilson and Chris Canty hanging out with you. Tonight, the Minnesota Timberwolves and Memphis Grizzlies will tip off Game 2 at 8.30 p.m. Eastern to talk about that series and all things NBA playoffs. We bring in Richard Jefferson, ESPN NBA analyst. And Richard, let me start with that series because the Timberwolves surprised, I think, the country, uh, not just Memphis, uh, with their Game 1 victory over a very good regular season Grizzlies team. Are you surprised by that? And is tonight for game two a must win for the Grizzlies oh yeah I I think the Grizzlies are the superior team if they play elite but you don't want to lose those first two games at home and then have to you know go the, the hardest possible route of winning a ton of road games but I'll say this this is why it's not a surprise if you were to look at the second third and fourth best players in the series I think John Morant is number one but number two, I would probably say Carl Anthony Towns. Number three, I would I, I would probably say Anthony Edwards. And number four, you would you would you would probably say D'Angelo Russell. So uh, Minnesota has the second, third, and fourth best player in the series. And when you look at the strengths of the Memphis Grizzlies and the, the Minnesota Timberwolves, it's like they were number one and number two in scoring. They were number one and number two in first quarter scoring. So both of these teams are kind of evenly matched. They do it by committee. John Morant, obviously, a force. But I think what we've seen in this series thus far is that Memphis is going to need guys to step up and step up in a big way. RJ, last night I'm watching the game between Golden State and Denver, and the Warriors absolutely dismantled the Nuggets. And I couldn't help but view Nikola Jokic's performance through the lens of this guy being on the verge of winning his second consecutive MVP award. And when I think about the 12 players to win back-to-back MVPs in NBA history, outside of Steve Nash, Jokic's name really doesn't belong in that territory. So Amber and Wilson and I were having a conversation between Jokic and Embiid and who should be the NBA MVP. I know Jokic is favored to win MVP, but in your eyes, should it be Jokic or should it be Embiid? I think it's Embiid. I think at the time, People, people greatly underestimate – okay, let, let's rewind it. The MVP is one of the most confusing things in our league. There should be an offensive player of the year, just like there's a defensive player of the year, and there should be a most valuable player. I think this year, uh, I think Jokic is probably – like when you look at his numbers, you would say that he would probably be the offensive player of the year if you look at all of the numbers that he has accumulated together. But there is a reason why when you win an MVP – you buy your entire team gifts. You buy them Rolexes. You buy them watches. You buy them different things. It's because the MVP is a team award. It is a team award. And my biggest thing is a guy that loves Jokic, and I think he is a great ambassador to this league. He's one of the top probably two or three players in this league. For this year, for us to use a similar narrative and say, well, last year he was able to keep him afloat, and they finished third with no Jamal Murray, Michael Porter Jr. banged up, all of these different things. And you're like, wow. That's an MVP performance. I get it. But then to come into this season and to see his numbers go up, but his team, they finished sixth. They finished sixth. There's a high probability that they're going to, that they could get swept. I'm not going to count them out yet. I think Denver's a tough place to play, but you look at this and you're saying the most valuable player is oftentimes the best player in the NBA that year. And if the best player in the NBA is 
the possibility of getting swept, was he really the most dominant player or are we just going to look at stats? And to your point about the Steve Nash, when you look at back-to-back MVPs for Jordan, when you look at back-to-back MVPs for, uh, I believe, Tim Duncan, when you look Mm -hmm. at back-to-back MVPs for LeBron James, when you look at back-to-back MVPs for Steve Nash and Giannis, all of their teams finished top one or top two. And you can be like, well, his team was hurt. Well, yeah, I get it. But that's also the way the NBA has, has rewarded having an entire team and you having the best season on the best team. And so if we start, to me, I think it's dangerous territory to just. I know Russell Westbrook broke, like, you know, Oscar Robertson, and that was the last time that it was basically probably given on stats. But I don't, I'm not a big fan of it just be going to whoever has the best statistical numbers that year. It's okay, Richard. I'll allow both you and Chris Canty to be wrong about this MVP conversation. Richard Jefferson, <laughs> ESPN NBA analyst, joining us. But let's move the attention over to your MVP, Joel Embiid's teammate in James Harden. He put up 14, 6, and 6 yesterday as the Sixers got another win there against a disappointing Raptors team by my evaluation. But, Richard, what have you made of James Harden so far in this series? I mean, are there any concerns there? His numbers maybe not so gaudy, but he has been highly effective in other areas of the court. Well, yeah, I, I think in order for – we know this. And I know that that I think he – Tyrese Maxey had a great game. Joel Embiid is just being Joel. I, I think when you look at James Harden, if the 76ers are going to have a chance to win an NBA championship or even to advance deep, he's going to need to get back to uh, we let's let's not say MVP level I think that's that that would be obvious I think he needs to get back to being one of the top 10 players in this league and if you look at his performance over the last probably two three months maybe after that first like couple weeks after the trade he hasn't played like a top 10 player in the league and there's been many a times where he was a top five player in the league over the last five seasons so he's not playing like a top 10 player not yet and I think that's the progression for him is to figure out how to get his game back and do all the things like, look, no one's going to scoff at the numbers he's putting up. But at the end of the day, when you're uh, used to watching him dominate a game from start to finishes and, and defense is not having a clue how to guard him, he's got to find a way to get back to that because Tyrese Maxey, Tobias Harris, those guys can contribute like they have, but ultimately when it gets down to that elite Milwaukee, Miami, Phoenix, Golden State, you got to be playing. James Harden's got to be playing at an elite, elite, elite level if the 76ers are going to compete with those teams. Toronto, they're just shorthanded, and, you know, they are what they are. Talking with ESPN NBA analyst Richard Jefferson on ESPN Radio. And, RJ, we're about to take a hard turn like you are, apparently, with the single being on and go back to that game last night with the Warriors and the Nuggets. And I got to ask you this question. With the emergence of Jordan Poole, a buttoning superstar in the NBA, I got to ask you this. Are the Golden State Warriors now the team to beat in the Western Conference? Or is that still the Phoenix Suns? No. No, it's still the Phoenix Suns. The Phoenix Suns have been the best team all year. Right now, the Golden State Warriors are still trying to figure out who's starting. And, and that's the one thing that I love about the, about the NBA playoffs. You can't get too high. You can't get too low. Even now that I'm here as an analyst, like I try not to get too high and too low because I've seen series do very, very weird things. Now, when I look at the Golden State Warriors, their depth, all of the things that they're able to do, Jordan Poole is playing great, but understand, they're playing against the Denver Nuggets. And this is not to disrespect the Denver Nuggets. 
but we can't say the Golden State Warriors look like they're ready to win a championship playing against the sixth-ranked team. They are doing what they are supposed to do against the Denver Nuggets. They legitimately are. Now, you give them credit because they have the MVP, and Draymond's back, and Clay is back, and Jordan Poole is playing at a level. Steph is back and coming off the bench. So their team is playing great, but I don't get too high and say, well, look at how they dominated the Nuggets. They're ready to win a championship. It's like the Nuggets are the, the sixth best team in that conference, and they're going to have to play far better teams if you're talking about winning a championship. So I'm, I'm judging them a little bit here, but my real judge will be probably in the second round, probably in the conference finals. You see one or two games that, that they start to look unbeatable or start to look elite, then you start to – because we, can, we can't just forget about the last, you know, two and a half months, three months of the Golden State Warriors season where they looked average due to injury. Yeah, I think sub 500 the last 10 weeks of the season. So TBD, as the kids would say. Richard Jefferson, ESPN NBA analyst, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you guys for having me. Hope you guys have me on soon. Coming up next, we transition to another series in these NBA playoffs. Does Detroit Young have to play at superstar level for Atlanta to win this over the Miami Heat? We get into that. This is ESPN Radio with Amber Wilson and Chris Canty. ESPN Radio. Marcus Smart has been named the 2021-2022 NBA Defensive Player of the Year, Chris. The league announced yesterday. On Sunday, we learned that Smart, Phoenix Suns wing Mikhail Bridges, and Utah Jazz Center Rudy Gobert were the finalists for the award. And Bridges owned earned 22 first place votes, but Smart took the race with 37 first place votes. Gobert rounded out the voting at 12 votes. Do you have any issue here with Marcus Smart winning Defensive Player of the Year? Oh, not at all. I, I think he absolutely should win Defensive Player of the Year. And here's the thing, Amber, you're talking about a guy that was the best defensive player on the best defensive team in the entire NBA. And not to mention the toughness and the value add that Marcus Smart brings to them on the offensive end. Because think about this. The Celtics started clicking on all cylinders, especially Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, when they decided to embrace Marcus Smart as the primary ball handler and point guard for that offense. So him being able to distribute and get them the ball in their spots is what allowed them to be 25-plus point-a-game scorers this season. But then beyond that, like just doing all of the dirty work, Amber – drawing fouls, stepping in the passing lane and getting steals and deflections. I mean, this guy does it all, and he's not afraid to defend anybody. Now, he's not a guy that can defend one through five, but he won't back away from the challenge either. And so when you watch 
what Marcus Smart means to this team from a toughness and an identity standpoint, I'm all on board with him being acknowledged as the defensive player of the year and being the one that gets tabbed for this award for the first time as a guard that we've seen a guard win the award since the mid-90s. So I'm all about Marcus Smart winning the award. It's much deserved, and I'm glad he's getting his flowers and being recognized. Uh, You want to evaluate these awards with MVP based on what's happening in the playoffs. If you want to do that, I think we could have a conversation about Rudy Gobert being even in this conversation. And as a Heat fan, I do feel like Bam maybe should have been in the conversation, but he'll miss a lot of time this season. I don't have any problem with Marcus Smart actually winning this thing, though, because he's the first guard since uh, Gary Payton in 1996 to win Mm -hmm. this award. It's really impressive what he's done this season in really catapulting Boston's defense to be the best defense in the entire NBA because you're right that was on the shoulders of Marcus Smart doing that they started that season 23 and 24 in Boston and they turned things around at 27 and 7 down the stretch and a lot of that was because they realized that Marcus Smart defensively is elite even at that guard position I know Peyton had previously endorsed Marcus Smart so he'll be happy to see another guard win the award Marcus Smart your defensive player of the year well deserved for the Boston Celtics. So there's a lot of NBA action that rolls on in this postseason tonight. 7.30 p.m. tip-off between the Atlanta Hawks and the Miami Heat. Amber Wilson and Chris Canty here on ESPN Radio. That series right now, the Miami Heat have a one nothing lead. And, Chris, I don't even know if that tells the story because the game one was so <laughs> lopsided in that series. And it's funny because going into that series, and listen, I am a huge Miami Heat fan, but going into that series, I had been waxing poetic on air about Trey Young because I do think Trey Young is a phenomenal player and I wasn't waxing poetic in terms of this matchup but in terms of when we were talking about you know getting into these playoffs and Trey Young is just such an exciting young player to watch and an exciting player for Atlanta but the problem with Trey Young is that when you're too reliant on Trey Young and you're facing a vet team like the Heat and they manage to contain Trey Young then all of a sudden things get very very difficult for the Atlanta Hawks. It is very difficult to contain Trey Young, Chris Canty. Somehow the f- the Heat found a way here in this series. It's not difficult for the Miami Heat, but you think about the personalities that they have on on their team. Kyle Lowry, Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, like real tough guys. And, mm-hmm. and they pride themselves on being good defensively as well as being efficient offensively. And when you look at how tied together this Miami Heat team is, I wasn't surprised by the result, Amber. I said it in that game with the Cavs and the Hawks in the the final play-in. I said if the Atlanta Hawks get in, the Miami Heat are going to go through them like a knife through warm butter. I thought that the Cleveland Cavs would put up more of a fight just because of how much better the Cleveland Cavs are defensively than the Atlanta Hawks. And really, when you look at the Hawks offensively, it's everybody react from what Trey Young is doing. It doesn't seem like it has a lot of structure. And when you're playing against a team that is as deliberate and as dialed in defensively as the Miami Heat, that, that, that style of basketball, that brand of basketball that Trey Young brings to the table is not going to work. And that's why you saw the Atlanta Hawks have 18 turnovers in game one, shooting 38% from the field. And what was it, 27% from three? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not going to be able to survive against the Miami Heat if you're doing that, especially with Duncan Robinson coming off of the bench and going eight or nine from three-point land. So good luck with that. 
I don't think this is going to be much of a series at all. The Heat in game one led by as many as 32 and essentially controlled the game from wire to wire. I would anticipate more of the same in game two, although I do think the Hawks come out with better energy. I think they're just overmatched from a team that it's incredibly more disciplined and plays a lot better defense than they do. So I don't expect the Atlanta Hawks to put up much of a fight, and it's going to take Trey Young playing like at an MVP level in order for this not to be a series sweep by the Miami Heat. Which we've seen Trey Young play at that level at times. And typically okay. when he plays at that level is when the lights are the brightest, right? And his back is against the wall. And we saw it in the play-in tournament. We saw mm-hmm. him step up in that way. And we know MSG and we know everything that happened with Trey Young last season. We know how great Trey Young can be. But you're talking about a player then that in game one gave you eight points, six boards, and four assists. I mean, it was he was so contained in 28 minutes in game one that I found myself even a little surprised, even as a Heat fan, even as somebody who covered the Heat for a million years and very much believes that the Heat have been overlooked as a contender this season, even though they have dominated the East in that one seed nearly all season long. But I was surprised at how dominant they were. And this, and the reason for it, Chris, frankly, is because it has nothing to do with the Heat. I'm just, this Atlanta Hawks team is strange to me. We are talking about a team that is basically the same team as the team last season that was in the Eastern Conference Finals. And I know they don't have Capella out there. Are I know Clay Capella is a huge loss for them coming off yeah. that playing tournament. But otherwise, I mean, yeah, like they're not so different. And yet we're talking about a team that was so disappointing in the regular season. And then so far in the first round of these playoffs is disappointing as well. Well, here's the thing. John Collins has missed a significant stretch of time too. So we can't minimize the impact that that's had on this Atlanta Hawks team. And now you're talking about them playing without Clint Capella. So you're talking about two of their prominent front court players not being available for them. And that impacts not only what they do on the offensive end, but also on the defensive end. But yeah, Amber, I can't make excuses for the Atlanta, this Atlanta Hawks team. The one thing that I will say is if you go back to last year, remember that coaching change that they had where they fired their head coach Lloyd mm-hmm. Pierce and then they, Nate McMillan stepped in and they were able to go on a little bit of a run, catch that lightning in a bottle? Well, this year you're talking about the message not being as fresh, you know, not having as the same degree of urgency and that potentially playing a role in terms of this team falling a little flat uh, based on the expectations that we have for them coming into this season. So it, it just it isn't the same Atlanta Hawks team, even though it's a lot of the same faces. And watching their body of work in comparison to what we've seen from the Miami Heat, I'm not surprised that we got the result that we got in game one. And I expect that to see that for the remainder of this series, which I don't think is going to be much more than four games. I'm sorry to say it if you're a Hawks fan. But, I mean, it's time to break out the brooms because that's just how dominant the Miami Heat are. I will say this, Amber, on Sunday, I was fighting with my dad to, uh, to watch something else. I actually wanted to watch the RBC Heritage Golf Tournament rather than watch the Miami Heat game in the second half because oh, it just wasn't on. even competitive. It wasn't. It wasn't even. It I'm was sitting here fighting my dad. I wanted to watch wonderful. Patrick Cantlay and Jordan Spieth and Harold Varner and Shane Lowry 
battle for the RBC Heritage Trophy versus watching what we saw from the Atlanta Hawks I was, against the Miami Heat because it wasn't even competitive, Amber. I was, the I game was with your was dad. I was watching a different Lowry half. dominate uh, in that series <laughs> with the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, it should be interesting moving forward. Clint Capella is going to be reevaluated, and he may either eyeing a return between games three and four. I still don't think it'll be enough for the Atlanta Hawks, but we will find out. Coming up next, we will also find out, have the Warriors proved that they are the team to beat in the NBA. This is ESPN Radio.